Exodus chapter 9. The third plague in each cycle of three is narrated in a very short fashion. So, the third plague last time, the lice, is the shortest of the plagues in terms of how much space it gets. The sixth plague is almost as short. Just five verses. Exodus 9 starting at verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Give us true fear of God. Help us, Lord, as we think about the reality that you give people over to their sin, that you harden their heart and give them what they need to keep sinning. Lord, help us to grapple with that reality as we reckon with this text tonight. Increase our faith and increase our hatred for sin, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The power of God to repay the oppressors of his people and to strengthen the hearts of those oppressors in their stubbornness, that's how he repays the oppressors, that's a fearsome power. God punishes Pharaoh in this passage. He punishes him with boils and with worse. He punishes him with a hard heart that remains committed to sin. So the threat, briefly narrated in verses 8 and 9, take ashes out of the kiln. Now what sort of kiln might this be? It's very hard to resist the speculation, and it is pure speculation, that this is a brick kiln. Some bricks in Egypt, of course, were dried in the sun. Others were fired in a kiln, just as bricks are made today. Now, if God indeed instructed Moses and Aaron to go specifically to a brick-making kiln and take the ashes from there, this punishment is almost too poetically just. You oppress my people. You make them slave in the brick kilns. Therefore, the product of that, the soot from that kiln, will break out in boiling sores all over you. What is God saying to Pharaoh and his people? You punish my people, you hurt my people, you make them slave in the kiln. The ashes of that very kiln will rise up and break out all over your body. So whether it's a brick kiln or some other kind of kiln, this threat is fulfilled. Moses throws the ashes into the air 
And as they fall on the Egyptians, and of course, symbolically, as they spread out from where Moses is, people come down with the nastiest boils you've ever seen. And so do their animals. I don't know if these are boils in terms of the growth under the skin, or if they're raw, open sores on the skin. In one sense, there's not a whole lot of difference there. They're just in absolute agony and misery. The magicians aren't even able to hobble out into the palace and confront Moses and Aaron. Far less, of course, could they take away the boils or reproduce the boils. They can't heal themselves. Some geniuses have questioned how there were boils on animals after they all died in the last plague. Right? Behold, the hand of the Lord will be in your cattle. There will be a very severe pestilence. Verse 6. So the Lord did this thing and all the livestock of Egypt died. Now, verse 3, though, specifically says, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. So the indoor animals presumably were spared from the boils in the fifth plague. Or, if you look at it a different way, let's say all the Egyptian stock did die in the previous plague, and all Israel's stock lived, which is, of course, what the text says. Now, if you're a slave-owning Egyptian, and your cow is dead and your slave's cow is alive, how long is the slave's cow going to remain the slave's cow? So the boils break out on the beasts of the Egyptians, Thus showing what? God has power over your health. God has power over your bodily integrity. And every time we or someone we love gets sick, it's this same reminder. God controls health. God has power over how well you feel, over whether your body is working or not working. And the magicians are, are, are hurt. Diseases kill doctors. Bullets kill soldiers. Boils afflict the magicians. Just because it's your area of expertise doesn't mean that it's not dangerous to you as well. Right? We English teachers misspell words. Pastors misrepresent the heart of Jesus. And the magicians are afflicted with boils. So that's the narration of the plague. Boils are all over. But the main lesson of the plague is in the final verse. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. For five plagues in a row, Pharaoh hardens his heart, or Pharaoh's heart grows hard. Here in the sixth plague, as we build toward the climactic seventh plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now what does this mean? Right, the first thing to remember is that harden, though it's traditional, is probably a very poor translation. We think of having a hard heart as a sin. And therefore, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then God is making Pharaoh sin. The word is not hardened. Well, one of the words is hardened. That comes up two or three times. But usually, there's two words. One is made resolute or strengthened. And then the other one is made heavy. So we talked about Pharaoh having that heavy heart that's weighed in the balance against the feather of justice and righteousness as he enters the afterlife. 
If your heart is heavier than the feather, then you go to a bad place in Egyptian mythology. So to say that Pharaoh's heart is heavy is a reference to what Pharaoh ostensibly believed about the afterlife. Pharaoh, your heart is heavy. It's not light and righteous. It's heavy and unjust. And this word, this is the common one, the Lord made the heart of Pharaoh resolute. No, it's not a sin to be resolute. Not a sin to be tough-minded. Not a sin to be someone who easily makes up your mind and then who has a very hard time changing your mind. That's obviously what Pharaoh was, both by temperament and by training. He was not somebody who was used to being contradicted. He was somebody who was used to having his mind and telling everyone else how it was going to be and all of them vying with each other to obey him as rapidly and efficiently as possible. So God gives him further resolution. Now, how do we understand this? God made Pharaoh's heart stronger. He made it more resolute, more able to make the decision, I will hang on to Israel. God didn't make that decision for Pharaoh. He gave him the natural capacity to stick more tightly to his decision. Now we could try to understand this in terms of quantifies. If we could quantify this, right? the average Egyptian, or let's say that the first five plagues, if we could measure resolution in terms of a unit, we could call it backbone. The average person has 100 units of backbone. They make up their mind and then they won't be dissuaded from that. But the plagues, the first five plagues, would have overcome anyone with up to 105 units of backbone. But Pharaoh naturally already has 200 units of backbone. So the first five plagues are not going to touch him. Now we say God strengthened Pharaoh's heart even more. Let's say God added 5%. He gave Pharaoh 10 more units of backbone. Does that make God responsible for 10% of Pharaoh's sin? Or alternatively, if God softens Pharaoh's heart, but not enough for him to actually relent, right? God takes away 25 units of backbone. And the first five plagues would have overcome resistance of up to 105 units of backbone. But Pharaoh now has 175 units of backbone He's still not going to let the people go. Depends on how your mind works, whether this kind of example helps you. If it doesn't, let it go. God gave Pharaoh, as it were, more backbone. More ability to say, this is what I think, and I'm not changing. Moses, you can go away. I don't care how many boils I have to scratch. Israel is not leaving. Why would God give even five units of backbone to somebody who's going to use it for evil? The fact of the matter is we don't know. Any more than we know why God created Pharaoh with 200 units of backbone in the first place. 
What we can say for sure is that God is more glorified by overcoming the resistance of people with stiff backbones and tough necks than he is by pushing around jellyfish who float anywhere the current wants to go. And therefore, he wrestles against tough-minded, stiff-necked people. That could be a reason that he saved most of us. Not because we were all in our high school voted best personality, easiest to get along with, but because he wrestles with people who have a certain amount of determination and who use that determination for evil. The fact of the matter is, God has given a certain amount of strength, fortitude, ability, to every one of his creatures. And among humans, we're all fallen, and we all take that strength and use it for evil. And the stronger you are, the more evil you can do. And God has chosen not to solve the problem of evil by weakening evil agents to the point of impotence. Oh, well, that's a really evil person, but he has no arms, no legs, and no tongue, and therefore all he can do is sit there and think evil thoughts. But he has no power to carry out any of his desires or even to say anything mean. That's not how God wrestles with the problem of evil. He doesn't take away units of backbone until everyone is a jellyfish. He approaches the problem of evil differently and in a way that we would call counterintuitive. And if we see somebody who appears to be bent on doing evil, our gut reflex is to say, take away their tools. Oh, this person is running around with a stick hitting his siblings. Well, let's take away the stick. Not, let's take this kid to the gym and get him a heavier stick. But when God sees somebody running around doing evil, most of the time, his default, his gut reaction, if we could describe such a thing to God, is to beef up that person's if not their strength, at least their resolution. How often, what's the most common punishment for sin? It's not God removing your health, or making you weak, or taking away your money, or your time. It's not putting you in jail where you're in a padded cell where you can't you do anything. The most common punishment for sin is exactly this one. God hardens the heart. That is, God lets you have your sin and He gives you, well, He takes away your conscience, more or less. He helps you silence your conscience and He gives you the resolution to plunge on in sin despite the pain and misery that it's causing you and the people around you. Again, why? We don't know. But this is the problem of evil. God doesn't take us and lock us all up in a cosmic jail cell 
as soon as he sees that we're going to use our power for evil. Instead, he gives us opportunities to repent, like Pharaoh. Five times, here's a plague. Pharaoh, turn around. Here's the bad consequence. Pharaoh, turn around. And after five times of this, Pharaoh won't turn around. God says, fine. Go ahead and be tough-minded about this, Pharaoh. I'll give you more backbone so that you can fight Moses longer and harder. I'll give you more backbone so that when hail destroys all the crops and then locusts destroy all the crops, you'll say, I really don't care that Egypt has no food to eat. I won't let Israel go. God's favorite punishment for sin is to let you sin with impunity. We talked this morning about how if you sin and get away with it, or decide that you've gotten away with it, your heart becomes hard and you usually double down on that sin. Getting away with it is just another name for God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh would have said, the consequences of my sin are manageable. These plagues are not so bad that I have to stop sinning. Far from it. My sufferings indicate to me simply that God is mean, Moses is mean, they're losers, my way is the right way. And insofar as you take any suffering that comes from God and say, I'm going to have my sin. I don't care about this suffering. My sin is still worth it. Then you're where Pharaoh is, right? You're begging God to harden your heart. It was a just punishment on Pharaoh for God to harden his heart. To punish sin with sin because the worst thing that can happen to you is that you do evil. It is far worse to do evil than to suffer evil. And God frequently then punishes sin with sin and lets you do more evil as a punishment for the evil you already did. Now, is that a model for us, right, as parents, as law enforcement, as teachers? Should we say, oh, you're doing evil. Well, here, let me help you do more. No. This is how the Almighty does it. Why? Well, the best we can say, our best guess, is that sin always takes you down because there is a place where you will hit rock bottom and there, then you'll have the final choice. Surrender to God or die. Some choose to surrender and some choose to die. Pharaoh surrenders in the moment after the death of his son and then he comes out to the Red Sea and dies. God always will drag you lower and lower in your sin. Because, as the one wag said, God's office is at the end of your rope. You have everything you need to sin. You have a certain amount of backbone. You have hands and feet and tongue and eyeballs. You have responsibilities and authority 
in the home, at church, in the state, in a business. And if you choose to use those powers and abilities to sin, that's not God's fault. If Pharaoh used his position as monarch of Egypt to sin, that's not God's fault. God made him king of Egypt. God gave him backbone. But his policies are not thereby divinely sanctioned. A little part of my brain is remembering something, probably wrongly, from the Bush administration. Some kind of debate within the circles I was in at the time about whether God had appointed President Bush to be our president back with the Iraq war debacle and everything in 2004 when we discovered that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And some people, some people I knew, were very adamantly opposed to the suggestion that God had made President Bush president because they regarded that as some kind of statement that Bush's policies were thereby endorsed by the Almighty. That's not what Scripture is saying. In the next plague, God goes on. He actually teaches Pharaoh a long theology lesson. In verse 16, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Right, it's there in black and white. God raised up Pharaoh to be Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh the backbone that he had, and the power that he had, and the ability to do the sins that he did. But God did not thereby endorse those sins or say Pharaoh I put you in office and therefore you're my puppet and everything you do in office is something I'm doing through you far from it Pharaoh went so far in sin that he couldn't turn back he was put by God into a place where he had a large scope for sin And he used up all that scope. All of you have been put by God into a place where you have a pretty good sized scope for sin too. You can use that scope. And if you do, and if you insist on continuing in whatever sin it is, you will get to the place where you can't turn back. God can send grace to you that softens your heart and makes you more sensitive to sin. Or he can send anti-grace, what we usually call wrath, that hardens your heart and makes you less sensitive to sin and gives you the idea that you're getting away with your sin, that the consequences are manageable, that your sin is worth it. And as you come to believe that lie more and more, then like Pharaoh, you do more and more irrational things, plunging deeper and deeper into sin. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by sending anti-grace, by sending wrath on Pharaoh for what he was doing to God's people. So beware. right? We tend to think that the punishment of sin will always be something where we can just tap out easily. Oh, God, you took my child. Okay, I'll stop neglecting my parental responsibilities. 
Oh, you took my livelihood. Well, I'll stop cheating on my taxes. God doesn't usually punish our sin with something where we can say, okay, that crossed the line. Rather, he punishes our sin by taking away our ability to perceive how bad the consequences of our sins are. That's what hardening the heart is. That's what increasing the resolution of the heart means. Right. To go back to our earlier illustration, if at the beginning Pharaoh had 150 units of backbone or he had 200 by nature, by the time we get to the ninth plague, anyone with less than 600 units of backbone would have stepped down, would have relented, would have admitted that God is right. But as God turns up the heat on you, right, he turns down the sensitivity on your thermostat. You're getting steamed alive, roasted in the fires of hell, and you don't even think it's warm. That was Pharaoh. Don't go down that road. You've heard the gospel. Your heart is soft enough that you're here in church. Don't waste that. Ask God for the grace to make you sensitive to sin, to make you see the consequences of sin and that sin is never worth it. Turn back to Jesus and know His softening grace that allows you to see your sin, repent of your sin, flee from your sin. Because trust me, You don't want these boils. Let's pray. Father, you hardened Pharaoh's heart. You gave him the resolution to plunge ahead in his sin. Lord, we ask that you would appropriately terrify us with that. that you would make us more sensitive to our sin, that you would expose the rottenness of our hearts to us, that you would give us the grace to hate sin rather than the anti-grace, the wrath that hardens our hearts, makes us less sensitive to sin and more sure that we're getting away with our sin even though the smoking ruins of our life are all around us because our sin is destroying us. Lord, help us. Help us to hate sin and flee from it. Give us backbone, yes, Father, but give us backbone that we might use in serving you. A resolution to hunt down and kill sin wherever it's found in our hearts. A resolution to flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love from a pure heart. A resolution to hate every form of evil. Strengthen us, Father, with might by Your Spirit in the inner man that we might know the love of Christ and that we might live out the love of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.